Welcome to Church at the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I had bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, we just want to thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to be here, Lord. We ask that you would speak clearly to our hearts. Lord, we desire that Jesus would be glorified in this space. We ask that you would allow us, through your power of your Holy Spirit, to leave here different than when we came in. Lord, convict our hearts where we need to be convicted. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Lord, most importantly, maybe we see the gospel in everything that's said today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can be seated. Good morning. Well done. All right. That's good. You guys are learning. So it's nice to be back. So for uh, those of you who might be new, I'm glad that you're here. Welcome. My name is Kevin. I'm the lead pastor of Church at the Well. Um, Christy and I, my wife, have been traveling quite a bit. And she just told me, I think, yesterday that in the last six weeks, we've been on 14 flights. And I'm like, that's too many. So we have this period. Of, I mean, we, were, we spoke at different conferences. Um, this last week, I was in California at a board meeting um, for a seminary in California, and so it was all great stuff. I got to see some family, um, spent the last two days at Disneyland, which is one of my favorite places on the planet, and I'll talk about that a little bit, but um, I'm just glad to be back, and our travel season's over, and I'm excited to be back into this city. One of the things that's interesting about traveling so much and seeing so many different places especially, and we, everything that we did was in the United States. Everybody suffers from the same issues. Like, oftentimes I think that when you're sitting in a place like Boston and you realize, like, the temptations that are here, the issues that we struggle with, so on and so forth, it, it can become maybe a, a temptation to think, man, I know this city is so lost and there's so much work that needs to be done here. And then you go other places and you realize... There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of struggle. It looks different. Um, it looks different in the aspect that every, every, 
area has its kind of own unique cultural challenges, but the reality is it's a constant reminder that the world struggles with the same disease, and that's sin. And Jesus is the remedy. And I, I think one of the, the things that was struck me this morning when we were worshiping as we sang this song, God of Revival, is every single major revival that has ever taken place in the history of the United States started in New England. Isn't that interesting? Like, the likes of like the Puritan movement, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield. You've got missionaries. The first missionaries from the United States were sent from New England. There's so much history here in this idea of revival. But we don't just want revival. We want to see... I think sometimes revival can be like a flash in the pan where it's like the, the Lord kind of moves in, in a moment and it's really going to be de- dependent upon whether the local church grabs hold of the movements of the Spirit or not. We don't want that. We want like full-blown revival. We want to see, like I, I remember when we moved to Boston, one of the things I said was, okay, Boston is less than 2% evangelical. From a missionary standpoint, if you were to take Boston and pick it up off the map and stick it in like missionary context, it would actually fit in what we call the 1040 window, the least reached people in the world. We know that like 25% of the world's leaders are educated in this city. We know that there's more than 100 universities around here. I had this dream that, well, what if the Lord chose through a very small effort that was dedicated to him in a little neighborhood like East Boston to use this small church to see another revival come. And that Boston would not only be one of the most reached cities, which I believe is possible, but it actually becomes one of the greatest sending cities that the world has ever seen. And what would that take? Like, what would it take for things that have happened in the past in New England to occur again. And I know we can study history and look at all the issues. Obviously, the Puritan movement wasn't perfect. (laughs) There were some problems with it. But to see Jesus glorified in large groups of people in a city like Boston should be the desire of every person that's in this room. So how do we get there? As we continue through this series, we called it The Good Life. You know, I challenged you when we started this series of how would you define what, your, what a good life is? What would that look like? I remember in my small group, after the first sermon in this series, we asked the question, like, what's a, how do you define a good day? And you know what my answer was? Like, in all honesty, I said, I think a good day for me is a day where it ends with me being able to lay down in bed and actually sleep. Because there's so much that goes on that oftentimes what I find is I'll lay down at night and my, my head is just moving so quickly from all the problems, all the struggles, all the, the trials, the pains that so many of you are going through, the hurts, and then all the ministry opportunities, the, the blessings of the day, that a good day, it's just, I've just defined as, man, it's just nice to be able to get home and sleep and rest and allow the Holy Spirit to give my mind rest. 
But I don't think that's necessary. I mean, rest is good. I think, I think what's probably challenging when it comes to answering questions like this, especially from the book of Ecclesiastes, is that if you start reading it, you're going to find that Solomon t- seems to get repetitive. He's like, man, I, I've done all of these things. I've tried all of this stuff, and nothing was satisfying. Maybe you look at this first verse in chapter 2. He said, I, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. You know, this, this picks up from where we left off last week where he talked about wisdom and how human wisdom apart from Christ just felt empty. And then he hinted at this idea that instead of wisdom, because that didn't satisfy, I put my life into what was called foolishness, and foolishness was just kind of indulging whatever I wanted to indulge in. And then this picks up into kind of some more specifics. And what's fascinating about this is that I think in the travels that I've done and just living in Boston the last 11 years and just my life history and experiences and looking at our country, it's this right here that prevents the greatest revival. Like the greatest temptation in the United States is to sell out for what is known as the American dream. You know, you talk to people and you're like, hey, how do you like your job? Well, it's okay. Well, what are you working for? I'm working so that at some point I can stop working and do whatever I want. Isn't that the ultimate dream? I just do whatever I want to do. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. I want to make enough money. I want to put myself in a position. I want the houses here or the vacations here, and I just want to get to this place where I'm comfortable enough or my family's comfortable enough or me and my Wife are comfortable enough just to do what we want to do. It's almost like there's this goal of attempting to remove all responsibility. I just, I just, I don't want the responsibility. I just want to do. And in in Boston, what does that mean? It means okay, you're going to get old, you're going to retire, and apparently you move to Florida, right? And Florida's like, why you keep sending all these Bostonians here? Is that really what it's about? Everything that we live for, everything that we see, every every marketing ploy, everything is all about, and we talked about this a little bit last week, getting more stuff, obtaining something. What is it that's going to make you happy? If you just had this, then everything would be great. And what Solomon is attempting to do here is say, listen, I had the opportunity to achieve that which everyone desires from a human perspective, and I found it to be empty. It's interesting that our culture is actually built around the desires that Solomon talks about in this passage. Now, I think in human nature, this is probably a desire for every individual. There's, there's two major sins that we're going to talk about here and make it as practical as we can. But I have seen that when you travel the world, it's more evident in nations like the U.S. that tend to be spoiled. Right? Because if you live in a country or in a culture where you just are living day to day to survive, 
then your dream is more based on a day-to-day survival than, hey, I just want to get to a place where it's beyond survival. It's actually like I don't have to do anything, right? Like This is a unique challenge in countries like the U.S. I remember years ago, there was this call of individuals who were saying, you know, we're the 1%, we're the 1%. I don't know if you remember this. It wasn't, it was pre-COVID, so that was like 15 years ago, it feels like. (laughs) And it's like, you're not. You're not the 1%. In Boston, we saw these individuals, it was mainly like young people um, who had cell phones and just decided they didn't want to live in their apartments anymore and complain about what was going on and put up a tent somewhere. And it was almost like the free love movement was happening in front of our face again, right? With an attempt to make a political statement. That for those who were wise enough to understand what was happening, what it came across as is a bunch of spoiled rich people complaining. I think, in essence, when we read this passage, it's kind of what Solomon's going to do. There's a couple of areas here that he addresses, and as we go through this passage, and I'm going to move through it pretty quickly because I want to get to like the two major sins that I see being addressed here. Um, my prayer is that maybe you struggle with one of these, um, and that you, the Holy Spirit, would convict you to say, "Hey, this is real for me." Like, this is actually a struggle. So he begins in, like I said, in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, verse 1. I'll read it again. He said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. If we can picture the movie version, picture Solomon has achieved that point where at a young age, maybe he was like, started a tech company, startup, right? And it turned into Facebook and it blew up. And he had the ability to do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted to do it at a young age. And that's what he's suggesting here. Hey, I am just going to test my heart. I'm going to put it in a situation where it's going to be allowed to participate in whatever pleasure it desires. And he says, and I have the means to do that. Verse 2, I said of laughter... It is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. The the component that he's read in a couple of commentaries, it was interesting because they were using visuals, several of them, used these visuals of like Solomon moving from like room to room in his palace, and there were different things kind of going on in each room. And one of the commentators suggested that this was like the party room or like the pub room, where you kind of walk in and what Solomon had engaged was this idea of the party scene. Okay, so whatever that looks like for you. But he talks about, you know, I indulged myself in wine. I, I had people around me. There was parties going on all the time. Now, if you've engaged in this at any point, it doesn't take much to understand exactly what Solomon's saying because you know that after sustained amounts of partying over time, your soul begins to feel more and more empty. 
It's interesting how that works. So you have this ability to maybe go into the scene. Maybe you have your drinks. You, you do a little dance. You make a little love. You get down tonight, right? And you have this moment where, you know, you, you, maybe you had a stressed week or um, you just said, man, I, I'm looking forward to Friday. And on Friday, I kind of get to be something that I don't have to be the rest of the week. And so Solomon did this, and he showed up at the party, and he became the life of the party, and he was buying the drinks, and things were just rolling. But we go back to what he said at the beginning. It felt like I was chasing the wind. It felt like every night, every party, everything was the same over and over. It just became repetitive. As I was thinking through this, so I told you, like I got to go to Disneyland. So Disneyland has an interesting place in my heart for me. Um, I've shared a little bit of my story, and one of the things that Disneyland encapsulates for me is this idea of like family, okay? Now, if you didn't, I grew up going to Disneyland and up to like four times a month. So this was like my childhood. And for some of you, that's like, sounds like hell, right? (laughs) For me, it was a representation of my family being together when there weren't issues. So it's nostalgic for me, right? But what I found as I've gotten older, like we were there on Thursday, and I don't know if you know this now, but Disney's really expensive, right? And there's this thing in the back of your mind where you go, okay, like I looked at the times, it's open from 8 a.m. to midnight, and I'm like, we are going to rock this thing. Like we got there, at like we were up at 6, we had breakfast, we were at rope drop, and we weren't leaving until the thing closed down, right? And when I process all of that, what I'm thinking is I'm attempting in maybe a subconscious way to achieve what I felt as a kid, but I'm no longer a kid right? Like, nothing against Disney, but it feels different than it used to. But what I found is that I, I can get so wrapped up in just, okay, now we've paid a lot of money to be here. We're going to be here from the time it opens to the time it closes, and we've got to do every single thing that we can as fast as we can possibly do it, because we have to experience everything, right? So this would be like my partying, And what I have found is that I leave and I'm just going, I'm exhausted. As a kid, you're overwhelmed by the stimulation that you see at a place like Disneyland. As an adult, it's fascinating. You begin to see more problems than I used to as a kid, right? Like, man, the ride broke down while we were on it twice. Or that ride that we want to ride isn't even open today. Or, man, that employee was a little bit more rude. Where's the Disney magic? Right? It's almost like people to you going, that wasn't very Christian, and we go, that wasn't very Disney. Right? It, I remember as a kid, one of the things I said was, man, wouldn't it be awesome to get to go to Disneyland every day? As an adult, I'm going wow, this would get so boring so fast. Like it would just be the same thing over and over and over, attempting to chase the feeling that I had at first, right? 
Does this sound familiar? I mean, for me, that's it, but I don't know what it is for you guys. A lot of times when you enter the party scene, you might have that one amazing night, and then the next morning you wake up and you're like, I want that experience again. And you attempt to recreate it and it doesn't quite hit, so what happens? You gotta take it up a notch. We gotta go another level, right? And then what you find yourself doing is every night, if you engage like Solomon did, the level needs to keep going up and up and up, and you end up finding yourself in a position where you're chasing that which you can't get grasp anymore. He moves on in verse 4. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. He's like, the party scene didn't play out. So maybe he leaves that room and he moves into the other. And what is he looking at? He's looking at the kingdom that he's built. The house, the cars, the gardens, right? I mean, I don't know what that is for you. In New England, if you want to see something pretty extravagant, you can go to Providence, Rhode Island, and go through the mansions. It's pretty cool looking at what used to be considered the Gilded Age and seeing how people lived back then. I mean, it's, it's extravagant. And sometimes when I'm walking through like the breakers or something and looking at the extravagance that goes on here, Solomon talks about that was nothing compared to what he had. It was so far beyond that. And he said, I, I, I took pride in saying, let's build my house better. I took pride in bringing in more servants. I took pride in the aspect that when people came over, I was able to have the, the greatest dinners and these amazing feasts. My gardens were beautiful. I poured myself into obtaining stuff. Some of you, this is, this is a thing, right? You, you process or think like, man, my apartment's too small. I'm longing for the house. Our, Christy and I have now owned three houses in our lifetime, and I will tell you, I hate home ownership. I hate it with a passion. It, I don't know why people want to own a home. Like, it, I was telling somebody the other day, they're like, I've lived in apartments my whole life, and now we're going to go buy a house. And I'm like, I am going to pray for you. Because you realize that when like the toilet breaks, there's no one to call. You have to do it, right? Or you have to hire somebody to do it, and your money just starts throwing out the door, right? And here's the thing about homeownership. The projects never stop, ever. It never ends. It never ends. It just keeps going. There's always a problem. Always, right? And I've just sufficiently you know, convinced everybody not to buy a home. I'm not saying you shouldn't buy a home. Just saying it's not all that it's cracked up to be. There's a, a desire. I mean, I, I have people that are like, we have four homes. And I'm like, oh, Lord. Like, that's four major issues that you're constantly having to deal with. 
But not everybody, it's a home. Sometimes it's just obtaining the next car or the next phone or the next piece of technology or the next computer or the Prada purse. You're like, he knows Prada. Whatever it is, we have this We have this desire to obtain more stuff. There's an old school bumper sticker that said, he who dies with the most toys wins, right? Meaning I'm attempting to obtain as much as I possibly can for two reasons. One, something here will make me happy and help me feel fulfilled. And I haven't gotten it yet, so I'm constantly longing for more. And when I get the next thing, it lasts for maybe a moment, but then I'm on to the next one. This is kind of American marketing, right? It's almost like the marketing's better than the products, right? And we know that. If any of you like fast food, I don't know why, but hey, indulge, okay? But if you go into a fast food restaurant and you look at the pictures that they put up, and then they, the, the food that they serve you, it looks nothing like what you eat, right? Right? Uh, it, the, the technology that is advertised doesn't always, it, it seems for me to cause more frustration than the way it's supposed to work. Marketing is great. And we buy into the marketing. If I just have this, if I just have this. And Solomon said, I did it. I did it. Verse 8, he said, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. You can read in the book of Kings how much gold and silver Solomon had, and I've read that for you before, so I won't go back to it. But, I mean, I I don't know. I, I think growing up, there was a cartoon that I used to watch all the time called DuckTales. And there was a character in it. I'm aging myself. There's a character in it named Scrooge McDuck. And he has this gold thing that he calls his money bin, right? And he had so much gold that he would go and he would swim through the money. And in the cartoon, which is obviously a cartoon, he could swim through all of this money and then come out and say, like, there's a nickel missing, right? Like, that's kind of how I picture Solomon. The tributes that were coming into him were unbelievable, the amount of gold that people were bringing, he, he had more money than he knew what to do with. I think when we opened this series, I told you that, that his, his fortune, if it was brought to today's time, would be in the billions and billions, the hundreds of billions. He, he could purchase anything that he wanted, but it wasn't just purchasing. I mean, when you have that much money, it's no longer about purchasing, it's more about obtaining, right? Like if you listen to some of the greatest and most wealthy individuals on our planet, oftentimes people will ask them the question, and this has happened way more than once. Howard Hughes, Bill Gates, all these guys, they say, well, how much is enough? And they all say some version of just a little bit more. Just a little bit more, and, and, and what I think will fulfill me will be there. Well, you can already purchase everything that you want, but it's not about that. It's obtaining just a little bit more. And Solomon experienced that. He said nobody has ever had more money than Solomon, and it still felt empty. That didn't produce what he was after. End of verse 8, he says, I got singers, both men and women, 
and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. This is, this is Solomon engaging in the flesh. This would be the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. This would be, I, I'm going to let myself indulge in the pleasures of the flesh with whomever I want. He talks about all the concubines that he had, right? I mean, it's, he had thousands of women in his home between his wives and his concubines. And he said, I just indulged in everything that I possibly could. I, he talks about singers. Like I picture him setting up kind of this room, right, where it's just singers going. And he talks about men singers and women singers. And what's interesting from a cultural standpoint is this was really rare. Like, typically all they had was like choral music, right? Women weren't allowed to sing in public. And so Solomon's talking about, man, I had the best bands. Like, I broke every, like, musical genre possible. I had professional men and women who were constantly at my house singing and setting up the environment for me to be with all of these women, Romance was everywhere. Sex was everywhere. It, I could indulge in anything that I wanted. If I wanted it, I could get it. To the point where he'd be like, I, okay, today it's not going to be a brunette. It's going to be a blonde. I think when we look at our culture, obviously it's over-sexualized. It's constant. Right? Right now I have this, somehow I got on somebody's email list. I hate when that happens. Right? And so every day, I cannot figure out how to stop it. Every day I'm getting this thing sent to me, and it's some picture of a girl who's like scantily dressed. Scantily. Right? And I'm, now I've just recognized like where it's coming from, and it's like delete, 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 delete. It's, it's impossible to escape. It's everywhere. And we're almost taught by our culture, hey, one of the if you if you can get everything that you want and you can obtain, you know, your sex life probably isn't all that great, but it can be better. You just need to be with the right person. Or you need to engage in other forms of sexual activity. You need to expand your horizons. It needs to get more intense, more open. And Solomon, what Solomon would say is, I did it. Like, I broke every rule. I think even in our culture, if we watched Solomon, we would probably sit back and go, whoa. Like, this guy is, he's engaged in it in every way possible. Verse 9, he says, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Solomon became infamous. His fame was throughout the world. Everybody knew Solomon's name, and this was before Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and TikTok. I mean, you know how long it took for news to pass back then? And everybody knew who Solomon was. Everybody knew that he could have anyone or anything that he wanted. Everybody knew that he was the most famous man in the world. From an American standpoint, not Solomon didn't just achieve the American dream, he shattered it. 
in every way. He could do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted to do it without any responsibility. In essence, it's fascinating because I feel like what Solomon achieved is what our culture is constantly pushing us toward. We get to verse 10. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. So whatever his eyes wanted, this is the physical pleasure, he just got it. Internal pleasure, whatever his heart wanted, he took it. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. One of the things that I'm learning as we're studying through the book of Ecclesiastes is that we get to the end of a passage like this and you're like, wow, this is so depressing. How discouraging is this? If this is what my culture is constantly telling me to live for, and if I think and I process through it, we're victims of this. Every one of us has some sort of desire at some point to obtain something that Solomon has talked about here. We see this happen in ministry. If you think like pastors are immune to this, all you got to do is go on social media and see which pastor has fallen recently over one of these issues. Right? No one's immune. We live in a culture that says you have to go after this, and then we also live in a culture that says when you get it, you are now evil. There's no win here. Indulge in who you are, but when you become who you are, now we have problems with you. It's hard to process the end result. There's, I told you that there's, instead of thinking through kind of the discouragement here, I think in reading this specific passage, there's two major sins here that I think Solomon is indulging. And this is really where I want us to process. The first one for me is selfishness. By my count, Solomon uses the word I in this passage 14 times. I went after it. I achieved. I sought after. I indulged. My heart. My eyes. When you look at what Solomon is re referencing, yes, he's gone after everything the world promises will be fulfilling, but it's all about him. Every, every bit of it. This becomes one of the greatest sins that will distract us, especially the church from the gospel. It becomes about me, right? Instead of Jesus, it's, it, this is about me. This is about who I am. This is about what I want. Oftentimes, I think even those of us in the church can go through things to where we go, God, are you even looking at me? Are you seeing what I'm going through? We take our eyes off of who he is and we put our eyes on this selfish desire for him to serve us instead of us to serve him. God, you're there to make sure that 
these desires that I have are happening. You're there to make sure that I want to be blessed in the way that I desire to be blessed. Forget your blessings. I want what I define as a blessing. We we have the tendency to forget that Jesus is the most fulfilling thing and that serving him is what we have been created to do. And when we take our focus off of him, we take our focus off of serving and loving others, when we take our focus off the greatest commandment, love God, love others, and it turns around and it becomes all about me, that's when things begin to fall apart. And the reason I think that this is so important is because this is what the culture pushes you into. You want this stuff because you need it, you desire it, you deserve it. I love that one. You deserve it. You work so hard. You deserve it. You you have sacrificed. What ends up happening over time is when this selfishness begins to seep in, we start blaming other people for our problems, we start blaming God for our problems, and we stop seeing suffering for Jesus as an opportunity. We see it as a burden. And that's when our discipleship process just tanks. The second major sin that I see here is the sin of idolatry. Idolatry is putting anything above that which is most important. Right? And in an old school fashion, I think when we think of the word idolatry, we think of like statues that have been built. Those still exist, by the way. Or um, bowing down to something um, in a real practical way. What we what we forget is that idolatry is really a condition of the heart. We we can make an idol of anything. You can make an idol of church. You can make an idol of a person. You can make an idol of your kids. You can make an idol of money, stuff, sex, pleasure. What an idol does is it's what calls you. It's what you think about. It's where you spend your time and your talents and your money. It's what occupies what's going on in your head on a consistent basis. You, you literally sell yourself out to it. And though you may not call it an idol, like work can be an idol. Though we may not call it an idol, it's what dictates what we do, when we do it, and how it's done. That's what an idol is. When you look at what Solomon was doing in this passage, basically he was allowing his heart to make an idol of pleasure. The pleasure is going to dictate what I'm doing. 
Oh, that's the next party? I'll go. Oh, that's where I can get more money? I'll do it. Oh, that's what will feel better? I'll ingest it. And over time, that becomes the dictator of everything that we do. So if I were to stop here and say, okay, process this for just a moment. Think about your last week. How much time was spent on I? Think about your conversations. How much time was about me, 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 me? How much time was attempting to achieve that which you say that you need? And then process, what is it that's actually controlling me to do that? What holds my heart? What's that desire that's causing me to focus on myself? What am I shooting for? What am I attempting to go after? Has that become an idol? Some simple examples. So I know... um, you have to get to a point where you begin to ask yourself where you take the blessings of the Lord and find that point to when they become controlling. So for this is a really simple example, right? So it's like, hey, I like coming home after work and de-stress and have a glass of wine. There's nothing wrong with that. Scripture says drink, don't get drunk. But at what point does that become a dependency if you're doing it every single day? At what point in your mind, when you're at work trying to get things done and you're beginning to process, I just want to get home and pour that glass? That's when things shift. And it's a really simple example, but it can be anything. It can be, I just can't wait to get home and be with this person you actually idolize an individual or my kids or whatever it is. It can be anything. What is it? For many, it's the next vacation, the next experience. What is it that becomes this little G God in your life that is dictating how you're functioning and what you're looking forward to? We have to recognize those things. And we have to understand that here we're listening to an individual who attempted to achieve and did achieve everything that we say as a human being we want. And he's saying, I ended up in the exact same situation that you are in. Selfish idol worshiper. If you're here today and you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus, this is your life. There's no escaping it. And I know that. I, I was talking to somebody recently, and they're like, man, you, you just, sh- like, are, are you like a soothsayer? You've just kind of told me my life. And I'm like, I, it's because it's my life. Everyone, I told you, deals with the same issue, the same disease, this sin idea. We're, we're constantly attempting to make idols of something, and every time we do it, we find that that idol is disappointing. It becomes a master that, that is hard to follow because it brings no joy. It brings no real pleasure. 
It brings no purpose. It brings no fulfillment. The cycle will continue. The beautiful thing about the gospel when it comes to this specific issue is that Jesus breaks every chain. Like when he came and he lived the life that we were supposed to live, died the death that we deserve, three days later conquered sin, Satan, and death forever, and he offers you new life. Part of that new life is a freedom from selfishness and idol worship. He says, you were created to fulfill purpose in me, and in doing so, you will find the greatest joy that you can possibly imagine. Jesus promises fulfillment, but he actually can deliver it. And that's where things get cool. Because when I look at my life, when I am indulged in what Kevin wants and what Kevin wants to do, I find myself constantly sprinting for things that I can't gain. When I put myself in a position to say, like we sang, Jesus, I'm yours. I will surrender. I will do what you desire me to do. I want my life or in this circumstance, to be glorifying to you, not to me. That's a push off of selfishness, and it's a grabbing hold of glorifying Jesus, which we were created to do, and it creates more joy in us than you can ever imagine. And if you've lived with, with a relationship with Christ very long, you know this. Isn't it fascinating? Like, When we live for Jesus, we are at our greatest point of joy. You've experienced that. You come home and you're like, I'm exhausted. But glory to Jesus. Look what he did today. Look what he allowed me to participate in. Look how he moved. That was fulfilling. When it becomes about others and it becomes about him, then everything changes. Jesus, it's, it's interesting because Jesus will actually say things like, come and taste what's good. Right? Because he's longing for us to desire that nonstop. He wants us to take all of the passions that we have for what our culture says we need and focus them onto him. And he says, I promise you, I will give you greater passion and I will give you fulfillment. He promises a life that's filled with abundance, abundant joy, abundant love, abundant purpose. It's not chasing after things that can't, you know, Jesus doesn't have great marketing. I'm going to be honest with you, right? So what's cool about the gospel is that the marketing isn't all that great, but the product is amazing. There are, there are things in the world that are marketed almost better. The church does a bad job of marketing Jesus. Why? Mainly because we don't show the joy. Like I'm blown away. When I think about, when I, talk, when I spoke earlier about revival, what would it take for us to see revival in an area like Boston again? It would take the church a small church like this, to be completely sold out to Jesus and say, I'm going to abandon selfishness and I'm going to abandon idol worship and I'm going to focus through the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God on doing the purpose that Jesus has given me. Then you go, well, why would that create revival? 
because it's contagious. Joy, true joy, is more contagious than what the world offers that's empty. But too often, we're like playing with this stuff that Solomon's talking about, while in the background we're going, oh, you love Jesus, and people look at us and they go, there's no difference between you and me. You're struggling with the exact same stuff. You're still unhappy. You're still chasing idols. So how is Jesus even being applied? Like, why, why have Jesus? What is it really doing? And if somebody asks you that, this is what they're really saying to you. I don't see any difference. And that's probably the most sad thing that an individual could say to us as Christ followers. You're saying, I've given my life to Jesus. I know, he's cut the chains. I am free from being a slave to sin. I no longer have to indulge in idol worship. I no longer have to indulge in selfishness. I am free from pursuing that which culture says I have to pursue. And I'm claiming that I know Jesus and you're seeing no difference in me, no more joy, no more fulfillment. That's sad. That makes me question whether we're actually participating in what Jesus has or not. Imagine what would happen in a little neighborhood like East Boston if just the people in here who know Jesus actually lived it out and displayed the joy and the love of Christ every day for a month. What would happen? I mean, the conversations would change. People would be coming to you and going, I don't know who you are, and I don't know what you're on, but I want it. When you say, I'm on Jesus, my life has meaning and purpose. I'm not chasing after the things that have no value. Imagine what would happen if you were able to take these things that have become idols in your life that are good, but have become idols, and remove them as a part of control of your life and then begin to thank Jesus for them. What would happen? See, I, I think one of the reasons that we're not seeing revival is because the church isn't living the way that we have been saved to live. It's not like, oh, we don't have enough people, or we don't have the gospel, or man, there's, there's this different culture. I mean, it's the same back then. What is preventing it? It's us. We don't look different. We don't handle problems differently. We're not people filled with joy constantly. We're not leaning into Jesus with everything that we've got. We're not walking into situations and going, how can I use the grace of the Holy Spirit to actually be Jesus right now to this person in this circumstance? We get so wrapped up in us we forget. I think that's exactly what Solomon is trying to get at here. He's like, look, employ the wisdom of the Holy Spirit in your life to understand that what you're really running after, I've attempted and it didn't work, and don't think that just because you're you, <laughs> that it's going to be any different. 
you have been given, Christ followers, you have been given the greatest gift that you will ever be given. You've been given reconciliation to your creator. You've been redeemed. You've been purchased. You've been blood-bought. It doesn't get better than that. It doesn't. You have everything that you need to produce a life that glorifies Jesus, creates joy in you, and is contagious to others. You don't have to sit back and wait for it. There's nothing being withheld from you. It's there. If you know Jesus, you have it. Don't fall in the trap of thinking, well, when I get older, or if, if Jesus would just do this for me. No, it's now. He has you saved and exactly where you need to be to make the greatest impact. So what needs to change to see that happen? Some of us just need to get a little more bold. Some of us need to actually display the joy of Jesus to others. Some of us need to stop playing around with this junk. And really grasp that Jesus has given you. He, I mean, it's fascinating that as Christ followers will attempt to engage, that's which he died for. Paul talks about this a lot. It's like Jesus going, I didn't die to forgive you for, from that so that you can indulge in it. I died so that you'd be free of it. And if you know Christ, you are. The gospel speaks into every one of these areas. So what is it for you? Now here's what we're going to do. The band's going to come up. We're going to sing another song. And I'm just going to ask, I, I just want you guys to really process. Like, I don't know what the Holy Spirit's doing, but is there something here? Is there something that Solomon was talking about? that struck a chord where you went, oh, I didn't even realize that I've made that an idol. You have the ability to repent, acknowledge it, and through the power of Jesus to be freed of it today. Maybe you're there and you're like, man, I, I feel like I'm not necessarily chasing that which is culture, but what I have learned is that I have things like, I think my spiritual gift is the gift of criticizing others. So the, I'm just going to engage in that. And you're like, no, let go of that. That's not joyful. Maybe you need to let go of something and grab hold of Christ. What is it? Don't leave here the same. For those of you who don't know Jesus, I love you enough to tell you that I, I desire that you get off of that circle. I can't do it for you, though. You have to look at your life and realize that you are a slave to everything that you engage in. And the only way that you're going to be freed of that is through life in Jesus. Then I will tell you this, if what's preventing you from doing that is the failure of those 
in here who claim to be Christ followers who haven't displayed it to you, then please forgive us for doing a poor job of that. It's not worth rejecting your own freedom and joy because of the failures of some. So grab hold of Christ. There's going to be some people over here that are willing to pray with any of you. If you just need to pray, you need to repent, you just have questions about Jesus, you can come over there, you can come kneel, you can come talk to me if you desire, whatever you need to do. But this is a time for you to really allow the Holy Spirit to move. There's too much at stake. God, thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of knowing who you are. Lord, I pray that as a collective body of believers that you would forgive us for being distracted by things that don't matter. Lord, I I beg that you, that the Holy Spirit that lives in us, that you would reveal to us the idols that are in our life. The superficial fulfillment that we're seeking instead of you. Lord, would you reveal that to us right now? Would you build up a body of believers in this little building, Lord, that would serve you and glorify you and become contagious? And Lord, I pray if there's anybody in this room, and Lord, I know there is, I pray that you would regenerate hearts that you would remove hearts of stone, that you would replace it with hearts of flesh, Lord, that you would give them the ability to understand who you are and their desperate need for you. Lord, we thank you for a call to what's real and what's fulfilling. And Lord, I pray that as we process what goes on in our culture, what goes on in our own hearts and minds, that you wouldn't leave us where we are that we would be bold enough and courageous enough to truly live a life that you created us for. And we thank you for that privilege in Christ. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.